The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Good morning, everyone. Does that video make anyone else want to do ballet? Or is it just me? That is so good. Um, Joy Brown, she goes to our church, if you don't know her. Uh, If you have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 11, and uh, we'll start there, and we'll be there for the morning. Um, Let me say a word of prayer for us before we jump in. Father, thank you for this morning. We don't take it lightly that you got us all here uh, and that we are together as your body to receive from you your word um, and the nourishment that it has for us. I pray that you would help us in this moment to put away our scorecards for judging worship or sermons and to put on our knee pads for humbling ourselves before your word and receiving what you would have for us. I pray that we would ask not what can I learn this morning, but what can I obey? We need to obey your word and receive from you this morning. So help us to approach your word, not as students to be taught, but as children to be loved and instructed by a father who cares for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful and you will do all this. It's in your name. Amen. Amen. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow-white Christmas Eve, going home to see her mama and her daddy with a baby in the back seat. 50 miles to go and she was running low on faith and gasoline. It had been a long, hard year. She had a lot on her mind and she didn't pay attention. She was going way too fast. Before she knew it, she was spinning on a thin black sheet of glass. She saw both their lives flash before her eyes. She didn't even have time to cry. She was so scared. She threw up her hands in the air. Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hands, because I can't do this on my own. I'm letting go. So give me one more chance. Save me from this road I'm on. Jesus, take the wheel. This epic tale, told by the philosopher C. Underwood, (laughs) centers on the theme of trust and surrender. A young mother reaches the end of herself, She's forced to relinquish control of her life and her car in a moment of desperation. Control in this epic saga being represented by the wheel, which must go to Jesus, who she believes is able to save her from her travail. According to Underwood, it took a near-death experience to push this single mother to such a leap of faith as giving up the wheel. But with life and car spinning out of control, she's forced to face a hard reality that she was able to keep shoved under the rug in easier days. That she never actually had control of her life to begin with. And she now must surrender the wheel and her life to one who has control and is over all things and is able to save. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines surrender this way. To yield to the power, control, or possession of another upon compulsion or demand. To surrender is to give up power, control, possession to another. Tim Keller, speaking on surrender in regards to the Christian faith and Christian walk, says it is to say to God what you will, when you will, as you will. It is in essence to say, I am not my own. I belong to another and he knows best for me. Given this definition, it's no wonder this young woman and we resist surrender until moments of crisis in life. And it's no wonder that it takes moments of crisis to pull us deeper into surrender. Yielding power and control 
is not a comfortable experience. It does not come naturally to us. To trust and surrender to God is to trade in our safe and well-defined illusions of power and control and enter into a mystery. That mystery being God's sovereign care and protection and direction on our behalf. And we know, this is where the rub starts, we know that God's intentions for our lives, being a sovereign, all-knowing, divine, and perfectly holy creator, may be different from our own. There might be a rub here. See, our desire for our life may be comfort, ease, success, power, prestige. God's may be different, and we know this. He's invested in our holiness, in our sanctification, in our likeness to him, in making us a certain type of person. We ourselves are invested in our comfort and ease. So we end up asking things like this when Jesus asks for our surrender. Uh, What will you give and what will you take away? If you ask me to sign this contract, this contract with no words written above it that you're gonna fill in on the back end, Jesus, what are you gonna give and what are you gonna take away? Because I prefer the illusion of controlling my own life. We wonder, is God good? If I surrender to him, is he for me, truly? We resonate with young Susan, a character in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, who's talking to a talking beaver. And she asks of Aslan the lion, who is the Christ figure in this story, is he safe? And the talking beaver responds to her the same way he would respond to us when we ask, is God safe? Safe! I'm actually gonna read this. (laughs) Not gonna try to quote it. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, God's intentions for our lives take us beyond the realm of faith, of sight, and into the realm of faith. They pull us out past the shallow end of the pool into the deep end where our toes can no longer touch and we are forced through dependence upon him to learn to stay afloat in his power. Even those of us who've walked with Jesus for years would confess that we struggle not to be side seat drivers when Jesus doesn't turn the car of our lives the way we would prefer. Our version of Underwood's tale would sound more like this. Jesus, take the wheel. No, not like that, slow down. Left, go left. I said left. Why are you going so slow? When did I ask you to slow down? Where are we? Why wouldn't you take the express? Stop, get out, let me drive. We get lost. Jesus, take the wheel. There's a scene in the movie Indiana Jones that I think uh, perfectly depicts what it means to trust and surrender and why it is such a difficult thing for us to truly say, God, I'm all yours. Do what you want with me and have your own way. Let's watch that real quick.
doesn't get any better than Indiana Jones, although I am highly distracted by his shiny chest in that scene. I like that clip. It's a picture of what following Jesus looks like. We are all Indiana Jones standing at the edge of the cliff, looking down, and God, our Father, is the freaky old man in that video saying, you must believe, boy. You must believe. See, I really wish that surrender to, in surrendering to Jesus, Jesus showed us the bridge before he asked us to leap. That would make it a lot easier if he was just like, Leap, oh, I see the bridge, but that's not how faith works. That's not how trust and surrender work. Most often when God asks us to jump and trust him, he says, you're gonna see on the back end my faithfulness. You're gonna see on the back end of trusting me how I had a plan the whole time. And we, like Indiana Jones, must jump. But before we get into our text this morning, I wanna address this. Uh, One thing I wanna try to avoid this morning in a conversation on trust and surrender, and fully, it's like the deep end stuff of Christianity. One thing I want to avoid is something I'm going to call moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism, which says this. It's a type of Christianity that's not actually Christianity, and it says, I'm moral, I'm moralistic, I try really hard to be good, and that's the thing I mark myself by, and I find some sort of therapy before God in that, that, you know, before God, I'm a good person, and I, God is this vague deistic being, not the actual God revealed in scripture, full of grace and mercy and truth and justice. And so here's what that looks like when it comes to truth, surrender and, and, and faith and trust is we could so easily approach this conversation and take away from it. Okay, I need to try harder to trust Jesus today. Like I hear it, I get it. I wanna be like Indiana Jones. I wanna be the person that feels no fear when he stands before the cliff and just jumps off and knows that the bridge is gonna catch me. And when I do that, if I trust and surrender fully, then maybe God will like me more. Maybe he'll be okay with me. Maybe he'll then say I'm good or probably more easy for us to believe. If I surrender better, if I'm more faithful to surrender and trust Jesus, then he'll pour out blessing on my life and reward me greatly and be really kind and good to me. I wanna tell you that is not what we're after this morning. See, you are not saved and justified and redeemed this morning by your ability to surrender and trust Jesus Christ solely. You are saved and, and justified through the finished work of Jesus on the cross for you once and all. And if the, you've come to Christ this morning through faith and you've said, Jesus, I believe that you died in my place, that my sin was poured out upon you, that your righteous life was poured out upon me so that we could be reconciled forever and I could be transferred from the domain of death to eternal life. You have nothing to earn with your surrender this morning. God's favor rests upon your life through his son period. End of story. You can't change that. So what is at stake in truth in this conversation on trust and surrender? It's our own joy. See, flowing out of a heart that understands this gift that God gave once and for all, free life given freely through his son, Jesus Christ. When you see him properly and realize and recognize that he's done that for you, out of that's going to start to flow a desire for obedience a desire to know him, a desire to trust him, out of walking with him over this journey of faith. You'll see him faithful through different trials and you'll learn to trust him more. So as we have a conversation on this, I wanna be clear up front. This is a journey. Surrender is a journey and we're all gonna stumble our way through it. No one in this room is any better than Harrison Ford standing on the edge of that cliff going, oh man, this stinks. Like that's just real. Like God is gonna call us to do things and take leaps of faith that are scary And our trust and our justification this morning is in Jesus Christ who paid it once and for all. So nothing to earn in this place. 
Our text this morning in Ecclesiastes is chapter 11. And I just want to say this up front, like much of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is cryptic and poetic in this chapter. So we're going to read through this chapter, and nowhere in this chapter are you going to hear him use the word surrender. So you might hear that and go, how is this sermon on surrender? I want to say, through this text, we can trace a line of we are not in control of our lives, we trust the creator who is, and in trusting and surrendering to him, we will find the true meaning. So let's check out our text this morning, starting in verse 1. And we'll look at four ways surrender to Jesus makes us the kind of people he intends us to be. First off, surrender to Jesus teaches us to live lives of risky generosity. Surrender to Jesus teaches us to live lives of risky generosity. Verse one, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. All right, Solomon, what are you getting at here with this very weird cryptic verse? Are you telling us to go to Trader Joe's after the service and get a loaf of sourdough and head for Malibu and cast it upon the waters? No. What is going on here, most commentators on this text would agree, is referring to a practice in ancient Egypt around people that lived around the Nile. So the Nile, in season, would flood its banks and its waters would pour out over the marshlands that surrounded it and over the land that surrounded it. And local people would literally go out to the Nile and they would take their grain and their seed and they would cast it out upon the waters. And they were doing this because they knew that when the waters receded, the land would be soft and supple and it would be mud. And so the seed that they had casted would land in that dirt over time and it would plant itself without any plowing and in time there would be a harvest. So they had to make the sacrifice of casting their seed, their own possessions out where they could not control it. They just threw it upon the water and watched it float away. But they knew that in time there would be a harvest where they would come and feed. Okay, that's great again, but what does that have to do for us today? This is what Solomon is saying. Your time, your work, your money are like seed. And he's saying that we have two options before us. We can either choose with our resources of time like seed to hoard it up and store it up, keep it safe where we can control it, or we can surrender it upon the waters of life. We can pour it out where it's risky, where we can't control it, and we can watch it float away. And Solomon is saying this, one seems controlled and safe and like it'll come with reward. It seems better to just store and stockpile. That seems like the way to, to build wealth. But Solomon's saying, actually, the true blessing and true reward to be had is found and will be found by those who are willing to give, to be generous, to live lives with their time and resources and money that are marked by a risky form of generosity. So how does this work itself out? Uh, for somebody in their work, perhaps, um, how are we... How do we typically respond when um, at work we don't feel like things are going well for us? We don't feel like we're getting ahead. We don't feel noticed for what we're doing. We don't feel like anyone's watching and we just feel stuck in the routine and in the rut. We feel underpaid, undervalued, unappreciated. Typically, the normal human way to respond to that, start working a little less hard maybe, skimping where you can. Start manipulating others around you. Just quit and leave. Look for ways to elevate yourself. But what is this saying? No, that's, that's hoarding, that's control. That's a way to control and hoard your resources. What does obedience to God's word in this look like? It looks like even in that moment when you feel like nothing's going right at your work, to pour out to others, to look for ways to be generous, 
by elevating others rather than elevating yourselves, to be faithful where you're planted and trust that God's watching and he will reward. What does it look like for somebody with their money? If you're a a generous person, if you're constantly looking rather than how much money can I get stored away in the bank account for a rainy day? You're saying, who's in need around me? What need can I meet? That type of person, Solomon says, when the day of disaster comes, he's saying there's, you don't know when the day of disaster is coming. And when that day of disaster comes, the generous people are gonna have it the best. Because they're gonna have people all around them going, you were there for me. You loved me, you served me, come be a part. Whereas the stingy person just gonna be alone. They're gonna have no one. So Solomon's saying that's casting your seed out on the water. Watch it float away and watch the harvest. And this is not a call to do it in this way that feels safe. Okay, cool, I can afford 10 bucks here and there. Okay, cool, I'll just be normal in my work. This is a call to give beyond what's comfortable. Where am I getting this from? Uh, verse, verse one and two says that you give to seven, even to eight. Now, are those just random numbers that Solomon's throwing out? Give to seven, even to eight. That's a lot. No. What's, what he's saying is this. Seven in Hebrew scripture and literature is the number that represents perfection. It represents completeness. And he's saying, don't just give perfection, completeness. Give to eight. Go one beyond that. You feel like you're doing a pretty good job with this? If it's not pinching you, if it's not a pluck, if it's not a prick, if put it this way, if there's no cross in your finances, if there's no cross in the way you work and the way you relate to other people, if there's no cross in how you open your home and hospitality to other people, that's not true generosity. See, Jesus demonstrated generosity by giving his life on a cross to the point of great suffering. And he's saying, give above seven, give above seven, go to eight, one farther. It's a needed word for all of us this morning, myself included, because what is our first instinct with our money? Pad the savings account, control. What is our first instinct when we feel unnoticed? Complain. So it's a calling to all of us to trust and surrender to Jesus and trust that he will meet our needs. Our needs. This is a call to surrender. Okay, so, and secondly, let's move forward. Surrender to Jesus teaches us to embrace mystery. Surrender to Jesus teaches us to embrace mystery. Verses five and six. I'm gonna read this and just listen with me for maybe a phrase that repeats itself a lot and let's notice what scripture's trying to tell us here. Verse five. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand in a call to generosity. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So what I think one of the things that we can say for sure, Solomon wants us to see here, there's a lot we don't know. Who in here has got a smartphone? Most of us, right? Guilty up here too. Um, We have more information in our pocket at all times than entire generations up until about the 19th, 70s ever dreamed of having in their entire existence. We believe if I don't know something, all I got to do is ask Jeeves and I can sure figure it out, right? I understand the world. We are an enlightened generation in our own opinion. And God's word is pressing its weight on us in this moment and saying, hey, there's a lot you don't know. You aren't as bright as you think you are. He says this, can you explain to me, wise generation, how 
Life is created in the womb. And not only that, how a pulse starts and how energy is given, but beyond that, how a soul, an eternal soul is woven together in the womb with the body so that when that physical human heart stops beating, there will be an eternal soul still living that will know resurrection on a future date again. And he's saying this, if you can't explain that, if you can't explain how life starts, how your life started, you also can't explain just about anything about God's plans and his vision and his work and what his purposes are in the world and in your life and what he's doing. He's bigger than you. Think about this. There is nothing that God does not know. Nothing. He knows every single thing there is to know. Uh, we send the Hubble telescope up into space. It's our great, one of our great scientific achievements. We can spin things in the outer space. And it, it goes with a camera to capture the distant galaxies and, and look upon the vast creation of what God's created. And it's captured this image of a segment of sky. And when you look at that segment zoomed in upon, that it's captured, what you see is just galaxy upon galaxy, billions upon billions upon billions of stars, endless in nature. And then you zoom out. And you realize that what you're actually looking like, all this telescope's been able to, to capture in its whole time up there is a needle point of the expanse of the universe, a needle point. And you think to yourself, whoa, who made that? I mean, think about this. Here we are, these small physical creatures on a speck of dust in the expanse of outer space and God, Yahweh, God Almighty spoke it with the word. And it was there and it's endless. And our greatest technology can only capture the pinpoint of it. And yet in Psalm 147.4, we read this. God determines the numbers of stars and calls them each by name. He, did, he not, not only knows their number, he's got a name for every one of them and he calls them by it. This God who speaks to the stars is awesome and amazing. Medical professionals, brilliant minds give their entire life to studying and understanding the way the human body works so that when people get sick and come to them, they can say, this is what you need and they can heal it. And we've come a long ways. But the reality is even the brightest minds in the world reach a point where they have to say, we don't know. So often they have to say, we don't know and we can't help. And those are heartbreaking moments. But the reality and the comfort is this, God Almighty does. Psalm 139 tells us that he knit us together in the womb that he knows how we're made, he knows how we work, and he knows what our bodies need. It tells us that he knows the number of hairs that are growing on our head, his meticulous, sovereign care over our bodies. Historians give all of their time and their lives to understanding certain segments of history. So we have World War II experts. We have experts on the Civil War. We have experts on the French Revolution. God knows every word that's ever been spoken since the beginning of time, going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. There's not an intention of the heart, a thought of the mind, a word of the mouth that has been uttered that God can't say, this is what it is, and I know it, and I've always known it. So all that to say this. This is the God that we surrender to who knows everything. And we don't like this, but there are going to be times a God that is this big confounds us. There are going to be times a God this big, we look at what he's doing in the world around us. We look at what he's doing in the world near to us. We look at what he's doing in our bodies and our lives and we go, this makes no sense. How could this, what? What are you doing? And so think of it like this. I have a nearly four-year-old daughter um, and she thinks she knows what's best for her life at four. 
She thinks she's got a really, really good idea on the things that make for joy and completeness and wholeness in life. And primarily they are cartoons and candy, right? Like if I just said, all right, Graceland, do what you want all the time, anytime. She's like, good, I, I know this stuff. I know what's good. Cartoons and candy for days. And I'm not, I'm going hard. That's what my daughter would do. And she, in her mind, genuinely believes that's what's best. That's what's best. That's what's good for Graceland Kinsley Miller. I happen to be 34 years old and I have 30 years of life experience that has given me a perspective that my daughter lacks. I know that candy and cartoons in moderation are fine, but if a steady diet of them will rot her teeth, her mind, and her heart. Now, be you 20 or 80 in this room, we serve an eternally existent creator always been, knows everything there is to know, sees the beginning from the end. And I just want to say this, perhaps his perspective, when we ask him, when we don't understand what he's doing in our lives, when life hurts, when we just don't get it, when we're just absolutely complexed by what he's doing and we can't see it, perhaps the answer is this. He has a picture we don't. He has perspective we don't. Just like my daughter in the doctor's office screaming as, I give her, as the doctor gives her a shot and I hold her thinking, dad, you're evil. Why would you hurt me this way? God is above us saying, this is what you need for your good. This is for your healing. This is for your future. God is good, but he's going to confound us at times and surrender to Jesus means embracing that mystery, not fighting against it. Mark this, there will be times in your life where following Jesus looks like walking with unanswered questions. And those questions might sting. God, what in the world is your purpose for this? Why would you take me through this? God, you could end this right now if you wanted to. Why don't you? God, where are you? I feel so alone and lonely. These are questions that under the sun, as Solomon's talk about, with an under the sun view, it's just us and dust. They don't have an answer. We don't know. But through faith and surrender and trust in Jesus, we know good, true promises that God's working all things together for our good, that he has a purpose, that he has an intention, that he doesn't waste our suffering, that our questions will one day be answered when we see him face to face, that these light and momentary troubles and afflictions are producing for us a glory that's not even worth comparing to them in heaven. Surrender to Jesus teaches us to embrace these mysteries of an incredible, brilliant, huge God that is always at work and always good. Thirdly, moving on, surrender to Jesus teaches us to receive life as a good gift. It teaches us to receive life as a good gift. Verses seven and eight. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So what Solomon says here, essentially, there's two, type of, two types of days you're gonna have on planet Earth, two categories. And you know we can move along the spectrum in each category. But the general categories are this, good days and hard days. He says, you're gonna have both. First, he starts talking about light is sweet in the sun. What's he getting? He's saying, there's gonna be days you wake up on planet Earth and everything is just clicking. It is 
good to be alive. It's a day where you wanna roll the window down and listen to some Bieber and just enjoy the beach and have a good, happy life. It's days where you wake up and oh, the back's just feeling great. What happened? How'd that heal itself and feet feel good? I can remember a few times in my life like this. Um, I think back to uh, college uh, on the lake in North Carolina with my best friends. Warm summer air, wakeboard boat, concussions on the way. Um, Just listening to music together, watching the sun, the light be sweet, watching the purple sky set over the lake as we enjoyed the fellowship of one another. Good moments, like full of deep joy, and we drank it in. And I've had, I remember 2009, working at Hume Lake Christian Camps, and I would, up in the Sequoia National Forest, and I'd drive my car in the afternoon down into the canyon with a few good books, and I'd, there was a river down there, and I'd just get out on a rock, and I'd lay on the rock under the warm sun and read a book and just enjoy the moment God had given me. I mean, that was, those were good moments that I look back on, and I'm just, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for those moments. And Solomon's saying, you're going to have some of those. Enjoy them. Don't be the Debbie Downer that's always looking for a reason to find what's wrong with the moment. Enjoy the good gifts of God. But he's saying, remember this too. There's going to be days of darkness in your life and you've got to surrender to those. There's going to be days that are hard. I've had a few of these as well. Um, I remember a past season I can look back to in 2010. I decided to move to Atlanta with a band I was in. It was a great life decision. And... Uh, we were pursuing the music industry. We wanted to be the next Coldplay. Wound up a waiter uh, at P.F. Chang's. And uh, it was a humbling season. I, I knew no one. No one knew who I was. I was alone in a new city. I wasn't marked by the guy who could sing or do music or as the guy who was a teacher. And I had been in California making my living as a traveling speaker and musician. And all of a sudden, I'm alone. I'm alone in a new city. No one knows who I am. And that season was marked by tears. It was lonely and it was hard and it was dark days. But looking back now, seven years later with it in the rearview mirror, I can look back at it and I can go, that was one of the best seasons of my life and I thank God for it. Why? Not because it was fun and easy, but because it produced a harvest within me. It produced character within me that I would not have to carry with me. It produced lessons learned. And not only that, but I saw that God was faithful and he didn't use that suffering for nothing. He didn't use those dark days for nothing. He had a purpose in them that I'm so grateful for now. And I would not be the pastor or human being or husband that I am standing before you today without that season. See, the wise will learn to accept from God the good with the bad. Rejoice on the good days. Say, thank you, Jesus, for this moment and just enjoy it. Don't overthink it. On the bad days, weep. Admit that it stinks. But don't do it without this knowledge in your heart that Jesus is faithful, that he's using it, that there's still joy to be had even in those moments and that he is at work. One of the great gifts of surrender to Jesus is gratitude. You learn to live with gratitude. You see and sense God's care for you even in the dark days. So what light in your life can you give thanks for this morning? God, I'm in a good season. Thank you. Give thanks to him. What darkness do you need to entrust to his care? It's a mark of surrender. Lastly, surrender to Jesus teaches us to love obeying God. And it's worded intentionally. Surrender to Jesus teaches us to love obeying God. Verses 9 and 10. 
Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. This is such a classic Ecclesiastes Solomon verse. I can barely stand it. Um, The first half of it, you do not have to be a Christian or a Jesus follower to like. All right, anybody in the beautiful city we live in can get behind the first half. I mean, it is the message of the air that we breathe. Rejoice in life. Whatever your heart wants, you can and should go get it. All right, I mean, you don't have to love Jesus to get behind that. I'm in, thank you, Solomon. We'll just stop there. No, but Solomon has to keep going, doesn't he? Do you need a hug, Solomon? What is going on? And he goes on, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. You just lost about everybody. Remove vexation from your heart. It feels like a bait and switch, doesn't it? So I wanna end by asking this question. How does this work itself out? If if there is, if, if we're instructed by God, like an act of obedience, it's an imperative in this verse. Go enjoy your life and rejoice in it. And yet also we're supposed to do that aware that for everything that we choose to enjoy and everything we choose to do, there's a holy God of justice that is judge over our lives. How do we thread the needle of enjoying life and living in freedom but, and in surrender, but also living it in such a way that we're pleasing and in the God that is our judge? I wanna, I wanna try to answer this question with a scripture and then we will be done. This is Jeremiah 9, chapter 23, or sorry, Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, I delight, declares the Lord. The first thing I want us to understand here as we approach this is this. Boasting and delighting, rejoicing, Ecclesiastes 11, rejoice, they're synonyms. It's the same thing. We boast in the things we rejoice in. We boast in the things we delight in. So for me, every time I upload a picture of my daughters to Instagram and demand that you click the like button, I'm rejoicing. I'm saying, look at these two girls. They're cute. You gotta admit they're cute. You better press the like button, right? That's what I'm doing. We boast in the things we rejoice in. We boast in the things that give us pleasure and delight, that give us a sense of worth and meaning. And what's Jeremiah saying here? What's God saying through Jeremiah? Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. So you think you're smart, you think you're wise, you think you got life figured out, you think you got an angle on everything, you think everybody needs to know what you have to say and hear it. Don't boast in that. Don't boast in that wisdom. Don't delight in it. Don't rejoice in it. Set a safeguard. You can be wise, it's good to be wise, but you better not start rejoicing in that wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. So you you think you're strong? You think you're pretty strong? You think that you can take on the world? It's good to be strong, but don't start boasting in it. Don't start rejoicing in it. Don't set your heart on it. Don't let it define you that you're strong. There's something else out there. 
Let not the rich man boast in his riches. You got, are you flush with cash? The bank account, you feeling good? You got no stress? Well, that's again, good, not a bad thing. Don't you dare trust that. Don't you dare set your heart upon that as your security, your identity, your meaning, your worth. That's not what the children of God do. They're called to trust something different, to delight in something different, to rejoice in it, to boast in it. And what is it? Verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Stop rejoicing in your riches. Stop rejoicing in your wisdom. Stop rejoicing in your strength. Be thankful for them, but set your rejoicing, save your rejoicing, your boasting for me, that you know me. So the most simple way we can say this, delight in Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. Why? Because he's the God of steadfast love. Because he's the God of justice. Because he's the God of righteousness. And what has he done? How has he exercised that? How has he in his sovereign, infinite, I need nothing, I can do whatever I want, chosen to direct his love? He's chosen to pour it out on you and me. He chose through his son to become nothing, to scatter his seed upon the water for us. And when you see this, when you, when you finally really get it through the word of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit and God says, I died for you. Like actually, I actually did it. It melts you, it changes you, it changes what you want. It changes what you boast and no longer are you living your life to fill your bank account up. No longer are you trying to get strong for all to see. No longer are you trying to get smart for all to hear. You're simply saying, I know who God is and I boast in it because he saved me. He died for me. He loves me. And when you see that, you don't have to try to obey God. It becomes very natural to you. You learn to love obeying God because he's your treasure. He's your joy. And on this conversation of surrender, we can leave this place trying very hard to become surrendered Christians, saying, I'm, I'm gonna be Indiana Jones and I'm just gonna jump. You'll fail, <laughs> you'll fail. You will fail. We need grace. The only way to truly begin entering into this journey of surrender that makes us generous, that makes us okay with mystery, that teaches us to love the life God's given us is to begin to be intimately acquainted with the Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for sinners like you and me to make us whole, to give us eternity. You'll have a lot easier time surrendering to that God than you will to the God who demands you earn his favor through your surrender. Surrender to the God who already accepts you, who already loves you, who's not gonna forsake you if you don't, who will pull you gently towards himself over time. God, there are real, um, in myself and in the people here in this room, there are real things that are, are, we are struggling with, struggling to lay down, struggling to surrender, cares of our hearts that are heavy. You wanna pull us into yourself this morning. You want us to see that you've got things under control, that we don't need to be anxious or fretful or 
put our faith in anything other than you. We don't have to be the loudest person in the room. We don't have to be the richest person in the room. We just have to know you and love you, experience your grace. God, when we do that, surrender becomes very natural. So would you help us this morning by the spirit and by the word to surrender, to trust you, to see Jesus. And will we boast in this place that we know and understand you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You can stand.